Well, we are looking at Philippians tonight. So if you have a Bible, if you'll open up to the book of Philippians, we're going to be doing an overview at 30,000 feet with some uh, touch and goes, if you will, if you come from a piloting background or you're familiar, Happiness 101. And as these books go together that you're going to be working through with uh, the book from uh, Randy Alcorn and also the book of Philippians, this book's theme verse here in Philippians is Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul, the apostle, in this letter, it's basically a thank you letter for the financial gifts that the Philippians had been sending to Paul from a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. And yet, while he's in prison, he is going to be sharing about joy that all of these adverse circumstances within his uh, immediate vicinity of his life, which his life went from either a revival in a community, then to a riot, then to a beating in prison. That was kind of his rhythm in life. And yet there's so much joy that he expresses in this letter. It's almost humanly shocking when you understand his circumstances. This morning I got up to uh, spend some time with the Lord, alone with my laptop, put some thoughts together. So at five in the morning, there's not any swanky, cool coffee shops open, okay, at five. They open at seven, but not at five. So I woke up, it's five o'clock, I said, where am I gonna go? And I thought, every community has a Denny's, right? 24 hour service. How do I know this? Because I used to empty out from bars when they closed into Denny's. So I Googled uh, Denny's, drove to Denny's. I got the very back corner, a little plug in, plug in my laptop that was about ready to die. And I thought, I'm going to have a peaceful time because I don't think there's going to be a stampede to Denny's this morning. Wednesday morning, it's not a late Friday night, Saturday night. And I'm there drinking my cup of herbal tea for about 45 minutes, about six o'clock, all these guys start filtering into the little back room. I'm like, what's up with this? It was a Bible study. (laughs) These guys came in there and they broke up into two tables and I thought I was going to have a peaceful, quiet time. But they were struggling with some passages of scripture and Two brothers were really having a problem with this character, Melchizedek, and I wanted to come to their rescue, but I was trying to focus on this for you guys. And uh, they went back and forth. And at the end, when they were breaking up and I had wrapped up my thoughts, I went up and introduced myself to one of the table of guys. And um, just we just had some brief fellowship. It was really cool. Then they bought me breakfast, which was awesome. So, you know, even early in the morning at a Denny's, These people were getting together to talk about the things of the Lord. And there was joy in their hearts at six in the morning. You know that's Jesus, right? (laughs) But the fellowship that was taking place there, it's a great day for me, bookends of watching God's people gather in the morning and then us gathering here tonight because you see the beautiful thing about the people that know the Lord. The psalmist said it so well. Psalm 144.15 says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen? There is a happiness, a joy that we have Our sins are forgiven. We're filled with the Spirit of God. He shows his love and his grace towards us, promises us eternity in heaven with him, and we are the recipients. We are the messengers of this treasure and earthen vessel that we get to deliver it to others. And I love how God's word describes that. Those who bear this message have beautiful feet. And Paul is going to bring us a, a... His feet are going to bring us, if you will, and his pen, a beautiful message, as it says in Romans 10, 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Don't you love to share good news? And if you have a message that will bring hope and wholeness and happiness and joy, who doesn't want to hear that message? That's why it's called good news. 
And in this passage, as we're doing this overview of Philippians at 30,000 feet, we flew over here from New York. And you know, you get up to altitude and everything's just little postage stamps down there below. So we're going to be going over some spectacular terrain. We just can't dive into it because this is an overview, which means we look at all four chapters. But as a pilot myself and learning to take off and land, you have to do these touch and goes. So you land, you slow down, you regroup, and you take off, but you never visit the terminal. So I just want you to know, we're going to go some, by some great verses, and you guys are going to go, why aren't we going in the terminal? Because we're doing touch and goes, right? We're moving on. And so there are four thoughts that stood out to me as I examined this book afresh. In chapter one, I want to point out confidence. If there's something that can keep you from the happiness that God has for you, the wholeness that God has for you, God wants you and I to have an absolute confidence, not in ourselves, but in him and what he's promised to us. We're going to look at the confidence that will help you in your life and my life. Also, we're going to look in chapter 2 at the confidants. There are three stellar examples of loving servants that put others before themselves. Lord Jesus, we have Epaphroditus, and we also have Timothy. And these are going to be, uh, we can't, we can only lightly touch there in chapter two. And then in chapter three, we're going to learn some mathematics, how to count properly when it comes to spiritual currency. And really, what does two plus two add up to when it comes to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And the big question that we want to know is, for this evening, the question that you have in your heart, or maybe it needs to be put to your heart, is what is robbing you of your happiness in God? And Paul is going to give us a number of things that can be obstacles, they can be hindrances, they can be a ball and chain, things that are holding you back from really entering in to the wholeness, happiness, and joy that God has for you. And as the Spirit of the Lord takes forth his word and it finds its place in your heart and your mind, there are going to be some things that pique your interest. Like, you know what? Here tonight, what is hindering you? You're here on a Wednesday night. You wanted to launch into this whole happiness study. You know why? Because you're not happy. You're not happy. And you're like, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I've got good. What, what, what's holding me back? What is holding you back? Only the spirit of God and God's word will reveal to you those things that might be hindering you and holding you back. But the beautiful thing is, is that God always has a remedy for the obstacles in our life. So we check it out in chapter one, pick it up. We look at the incredible confidence that Paul puts forth for God being able to complete the work in you and I. Look at it in Philippians chapter one. We have on the screen verses three through six, but look at verse six. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Philippians and said, the God that you and I serve is able to complete the good work that he started in you. Have you ever met someone, maybe you have one of those friends, I know a guy in particular who's a very skilled craftsman, but he has one tremendous problem. He does 85% of every project top notch, and then he just stops. And so at the end, it's not done. So his house is all these, wow, this room looks at, and you look in the corner and the baseboard, and he didn't do this corner over here. You're like, What's up with that? Well, he just got excited about the next room, and he went on to the next one. And he never finished anything. Now, this guy is a very skilled contractor, but when his wife recently wanted to put an addition on their house, did she ask her husband to do it? No. Why? She knows it's going to be half done. Well, 85% done. He was so upset. You know how much money we could save if I would do it? She's like, yeah, but let's spend the money and actually complete the job, honey. Well, that, that, that's a novel idea. God doesn't start things that he doesn't finish. And God has started a work in you by the grace of God, the day that he saved you, that the day that he broke into your life and you discovered Jesus is Lord, 
I come from the Snake River Valley in Idaho. And the Snake River, some believe that it was, <laughs> it was named after a, uh, snakes. There's not, I mean, there's water snakes, but it's not named after snakes. But the original frontiersmen that came to the, they met these Indians at the base of the Shoshone Falls, which we call the Niagara of the West. And there were these Indians there, and they asked them, what do you call, because the salmon could come all the way up, all the way up to Columbia, all the way up the Snake River, and, and they couldn't go any further than Shoshone Falls, it's this epic falls. And so the Indians were there fishing because it was the salmon run. And so these frontiersmen asked them, what do you call this river? And, and the Indians did this, so they thought they meant snakes. No, it was salmon. I mean, they, they were talking about the fish. Well, there's a reason we call it, <laughs> right? It would have been called the salmon or the, the fish river. But the thing is, is about the Snake River that starts at Jackson, Wyoming, comes into eastern Idaho, goes all the way across the, straight, uh, the, the south of Idaho, and then it dumps into the Columbia, and then it goes to the Pacific. There are times that the snake is so curvy that it's going the exact opposite direction it should be if it's going to go west, right? It's like the old phrase, go west, young man, go west. You're going to the Pacific, but it's all over the place. It's south, it's east, it's north, it's back and forth. And I tell people, you know what? That water that starts in the high mountains of Jackson, Wyoming, is going to dump into the Pacific, even with all the twists and turns. But you know what? God in his grace, your life sometimes is a bit like the Snake River. Right now, you should be heading west, young man, but you're heading a bit east the opposite way or north. And some people just don't know what direction you're going. But the confidence is that if you could start, if you could start any football game knowing 100% we're gonna win this, if every bride and groom could stand at the altar when they're saying, I do, until death do us part. If they could know, hey, we're going to make it. Why don't people go to make that covenant? Because they're afraid they're not going to make it, right? I know, because I went with great trepidation 33 years ago with my high school sweetheart, Tammy, to say I do. Because my mom's been married four times. My dad's been married three times. There's seven marriages between them. With our kids, when it came to step, you know, uh, stepbrothers and sisters, it's like I had to get out a chart. Now, this is the years, you know, all these people are connected. So I didn't have a lot of confidence in that. But you know that Paul and the promise of God's word, the good work that Jesus has started in you tonight, some of you are simply not enjoying the happy Christian life because you don't think you're going to make it. You think you're going to just crash and burn. You're going to go off into never, never land. And it just freaks you out, doesn't it? And if there's anything inside of you that will rob you of joy, it's the confidence in God's ability to finish his job. God can do it. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm trusting in him. And I'm putting that trust there. It's so important. There's also a confidence not only about my, that I'm going to arrive safe in my destination, which is heaven one day, and you can have that confidence too. But secondly, I have an absolute confidence that even the mess I may be in right now, I have a confidence about God's plan. Check it out. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. Confidence about God's plan. You go, no, you don't know what's going on in my life. I don't need to know. God knows. Did God wake up this morning and look at your life and go, oh, I didn't know. Right? Does he not know what's going on in your life? It says in verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, I want you to know this. I know you guys are looking at my life. I'm in jail. You know, imagine your preacher's in jail all the time. You'd think there's something wrong with this picture, right? If Pastor Rob, I mean, if we're pen pals with him at San Quentin and he's getting out every other month that you come preach, you're like, what's your problem? 
right? Well, he's a Christian Republican in California. That's his problem. But, uh, you know, a lot of other things can happen. But sometimes it feels like just the wheels come off of our life and everything crashes around us like Job. And it just seemed like there was just a big disaster in Job's life. But God knew, right? And it all turned out to where Job honored God by faith and God worked in all of those circumstances and he restored Job in the end. And here we are, 4,000 years later, talking about who? Job. Why? Because God got him through his awful circumstances. And this is the thing. Whenever you lose touch with every promise and lifeline of God's word, never lose the lifeline of Romans 8.28. For we know, <laughs> we know, right? All things, not some things, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called, the called according to his purpose. He says, we know this. That's what you call confidence. He doesn't, I hope so, I think so. Do you know even all the garbage in my life, God has turned around and used it as a bridge to reach other broken hearts? I mean, you would never look at the isolated circumstances. And that's what people do. They look at the isolated circumstance of right now and they go, I don't know how this computes. And because you don't understand, you lose confidence. You think God's abandoned you. You think God doesn't love you. But when you don't know what's going on, fall back on what you do know. God does love you, and he has a plan. And you just trust him through this, and he's going to bring you through. And others, when they look at your life of faith and confidence, it's going to give them boldness. That's what happened here. And the Philippian Christians, they said, man, Paul's going through all this garbage, and now everybody there knows he's there because of Jesus. We should start speaking up for Jesus ourselves. It brought confidence to others. Also, there's a confidence about life and death. You're truly not, not, not ready to live life to the hilt, to the full, until you're ready to face death. Because if the bondage of the fear of death dogs you, you're not living a happy, whole, joyful life because you're freaked out. I mean, every bump, every hiccup, you know, you, you, know, you have Aunt Edna, who's the hypochondriac. I mean, every time she gets the cough or, uh, I mean, it, oh, it's leukemia. I've been reading online about it. <laughs> and Edna, stay offline. Right? She's scaring herself all, herself all the time. It says in verse 20, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you and being confident of this. Notice the confidence. Confidence. I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Paul says whether I'm going to magnify God in my life or in my death. You see, the bookends of your life, you're ready. You're ready to, it doesn't mean that you're playing in the street and trying to die, but you're not afraid of death any longer. It was the fear of death when I was shortly before I came to Christ at the age of 19, that I really started contemplating eternity. I woke up one night and I had this old 67 Chevy pickup and uh, it was really beat up. And I woke up in the morning and I could not remember the night before how I got home, which was a common occurrence in my life. And partying hard and I'm, I was so out of it, I didn't remember driving home last night. And since I was so the, out of it, I thought to myself, logically, what if I would have wrapped my truck around a telephone pole last night and I would have died? Where would I have went? And I had this resounding hell <laughs> come to my, because I was living like hell and that's where I was destined. And it really shook me to my core. You know, I'm 19, I'm young, but that's the way I was living. So I was terrified of the thought of death because I wasn't ready for it. I didn't know it was beyond the grave. You see, some of us, even as a child of God, death still has a sting. Don't you realize to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, that time when you breathe your last breath and the last beat of your heart, you are going to exhale into eternity the very presence of God. You're going right into the presence of God. 
Now the people that we love and they love God, they're with him now. Now we really, we really kind of have it, have it backwards. When somebody dies and goes home to be with the Lord, there should be an incredible party, right? Celebration. Because they have left us all behind to pay the bills and they are in paradise, <laughs> right? We still have bills to pay. We still have temptation. We still have the devil hounding us all the time. We got a truckload of garbage. They should cry for us, right? We're still here. That's why Paul says, I'm hard pressed, man. I just want to go to glory. I want to be with the Lord. But I know that it's more needful for the people that I love to lay my life down and love and serve them so that there will be fruit. So I have meaningful service both directions. As I love God and I love others and I love and serve God and I serve others, I have fruit from my labor that one day I'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But I'm not afraid of death when it comes. If I get my ticket, you know, this is probably 15 years ago, but I had this uh, uh, egg-sized tumor in my hip that grew. And it grew in a very unusual way. And so I went to my local physician and, I mean, my general care doctor. And he was really just itching to cut it out of me. And so I said, okay, doc. So Tammy wanted to watch. And so he, you know, I'm laying on the table and he cuts me open, gives me a local. And he's taking this out. And then he says this. He says, oh, my. I've never seen anything like this before. Now, that's not what you want your doctor to say. When he's extracting a treasure out of your hip, you know. But I, when I was laying there and he's, you know, cutting me and kind of tugging on me and getting this thing out of there, and why it was so unusual, it was a tumor inside of a tumor. It was benign. It was a fatty tumor, but it had become sore and tender. I knew I had to do something about it because it grew so large that you could actually see it through my pants. And so I would, with my children at home, privately, I'd say, hey, check this out. This moves up here. And one day my son, he's like eight, he comes up and he, he tells his friend, I'm, I'm shaking hands at the back of church, you know, and he's like playing with a tumor in my hip. I told my wife, hey, I got to get the thing out. Kayla's playing with it during, you know, shaking people's hands. That's going to turn him off. You know, the pastor, I don't know, he's got a bump in his butt. And, you know, people are, you know, his, anyway. So we had to get that out of there. But when I was laying there, and he's getting ready to cut it out, my mom has had cancer. My sister's had cancer. My uncle died of cancer. We have, like, cancer everywhere in our family. And I just sat there, and it was, it was a, and it sounds strange, not to be morbid, but it was really a beautiful thing. I just sat there and said, Lord, if, if this is it, like, here's this massive tumor. If it's spread to the, spread to the lymph glands, and, and, and it's through my body, and this is my ticket, I'm like, right on. Right on, let's do it. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to see you face to face. And it flashed through my mind, that 19-year-old kid that was freaked out because I couldn't remember how I drove home the night before. You see, you're really not ready to live life until you're ready to face death. And so Paul says, once again, this brings confidence. Confidence that God can complete the work in your life Confidence that even the mess you're in right now, God's in charge, God's in control, his providence is working in it, even though you can't see how or why this is going on, and the confidence that I can face this life full tilt because I'm not afraid of death anymore, because I'm living this life in Christ. So as he transitions now and we go into chapter 2, because these examples, really, in your home Bible studies, you guys are going to dig into this, and, and especially the passage in verse 5 through 11 uh, about the Lord Jesus is the holy ground. It's the centerpiece as Jesus of the hero of this story. And yet, I only want to lightly touch on what Paul is saying here in verse 2 of chapter 2. It says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let no Nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Notice that. Let me read it again. Verse 3. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. And then he gives the example how Jesus, in humbleness and lowliness of mind, looked out for your interest and my interest by laying his life down, taking on the form of a servant, 
dying even the brutal, ugly, gross death of death on a cross. And God now has highly exalted him that every tongue would confess and every knee would bow and declare Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus served us and laid his life down for us. And then he goes on to use Timothy as an example and Epaphroditus as an example who was loving. Epaphroditus almost died. He was serving and he became sick in this passage of scripture. And almost, he almost died. And Paul was so thankful that the Lord spared the two of him, them, uh, not only Epaphroditus to go back to Philippi to take this letter back, but also for his own heart. Here this guy came to love and serve him. And what a, what a bummer if he came and he got sick and he died there to help and serve and love on Paul. You see, your life really begins to be tra- changed and transformed as you grow in Jesus. And that is, if you want to see joy, J-O-Y, you're going to put Jesus first, others second, and you last. And this life of service, of loving Jesus and loving others, is this secret ingredient that Jesus revealed to us in this way. He said, if you'll lose your life for my sake, you find it. When I love Jesus and I love and serve him and I serve others, you know what? All of a sudden I feel infused with purpose and meaning in life. And if I push Jesus into the corner and I forget about others and I look in the mirror and I start focusing on me, oh, what a sad pity party I begin to have. Now I'm sure you guys don't know how to have a really good pity party. People in Wisconsin know how to do that. You guys are the, the holy chosen. You guys are godly people. You love Jesus with all your hearts and you serve others. Therefore, you're, you're filled with life and meaning and purpose and happiness and wholeness. But just in case you slipped in the back and you're from Wisconsin, maybe you've just really been thinking about you this week. Man, how come I'm you not? Nobody's ever thinking about me, and how come nobody says thank you? One day in our Sunday school program, this girl had went through the training for several months. She got her first Sunday school class with an assistant. Now she was teaching. She just, this is what she had dreamt of. And afterwards, the uh, Sunday school overseer was going through, you know, checking on room to room, and there she was in the corner crying. And they thought, oh, her class must have went awful. And then when I said, are you okay? And she was crying and she looked up and she said, no, the kids were great. The class went great, but not one parent said thank you. And she was sobbing because not one parent said thank you. And this overseer said, oh, honey, (laughs) let me explain to you about self-centered people that call this church their home. (laughs) We have people, you know, the little, uh, in the era where they had the buzzers like you do at a, a restaurant, you know, parents would have a buzzer, so they'd get a buzzer for their infant in the, the, the uh, um, nursery, and in that time of technology, and we, we, there were certain parents, we couldn't get a hold of them, we thought there was a reception problem and this and that. No, they were bringing, they could get free daycare on Sunday mornings. So they went, dropped the kids off and they got it. And they were shopping at Walmart. They were all over town and they had the timing down for, and so our, our nursery worker said, how come, is there a reception? Is this broke? And they said, they said, you know what? You have to come when your child is so upset and we can't comfort them. You have to come. And they said, well, how am I going to get my shopping then if I have to come all the way from where to? Pick up my kid. <laughs> that's the kind of people hanging out in Idaho. Anyway, that's who we're loving and serving. When you think about people, people, when Jesus laid down his life for us, they stripped him naked and beat him black and blue. And he was coming to share, share his love with this world. When we love and serve people and we get kicked in teeth for it, when you're a seasoned servant, you're not shocked by it. Because self-centered people that haven't discovered the transforming 
love and grace and servanthood of Jesus are just that. Self-serving humans that are going through life, soaking up everybody that will help them. But the loving servant, as I give my life away, I find life. And this is the concept that we see Jesus bringing to our lives. We see it's the concept that Timothy lived out, and it's the concept that Epaphroditus also was going to live out. Moving on in our overview here at 30,000 feet, doing a few uh, stop and goes, if you will, touch and goes. Um, Chapter three, we want to count the math of spiritual currency. You know, every country has its own currency. Well, our citizenship is from heaven. And the currency, or the dollar bills, if you will, that you and I need to do the math or the counting. And Paul's going to use that term several times in this section. And it's the mathematics of making logic of the spiritual life in Christ. And he comes to a conclusion, and for the sake of our time, we really can't go through all of it. But we're going to look at this snippet, picking it up in verse 7 of chapter 3. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Previously to this, the six verses, he talks about these Judaizers that were so, they were so fixated on physical circumcision as the right of spirituality, the covenant with Abraham. But now we're not under that covenant of Abraham. We've now entered into a new covenant. And Paul the Apostle said, hey, if you want to have something to boast about, I'm, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the who's who in Judaism, really. And he said, and when I came to faith in Christ, I looked at that, the excellence of who Jesus was and the righteousness that I could have by faith rather than my own works in the law, I counted it as rubbish, and that's a very pleasant way to say it. I mean, this word can be translated like table scraps. It can be translated, you know, the garbage on your, ki- your kitchen sink. But m- most importantly, it can be translated as human waste, dung. Paul the Apostle said, I looked at everything that I said, I did the math. I added all this up, and at, there was a different time that I thought, because I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, because I was a Pharisee, because I was blameless. And he went through this whole list. And two plus two plus two, he's doing the math. I'm righteous. And yet when he saw the excellence and the beauty of who Jesus was, he said, everything I was trusting in is a pile of poop. Can a preacher say that? Can a preacher say poop? Pile of poop. Doo-doo. Right? And so everything he's building up, and this is the life of a religious person. This is the life, let me just get a little more personal. This is what you're piling up every time you approach God, trying to earn and deserve his favor. You're just stacking up a pile of poop. Because every Christian is going through life either trying to earn and deserve or believe and receive. When I say believe and receive, there's just something that sets you free about that, doesn't it? I believe in what Jesus' finished work was on the cross, and when I believe in him, he imputes to me, he gives me a perfect righteousness that is not, I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I can't make it happen. All I can do is enjoy it. But if you say earning and deserving, I say, you know what? How spiritual are you? How much you pray this week? How much, you, how much Bible reading you do this week? How, how much did you give in the offering? How much did you help the neighbor next door? And I go through the list of earning and deserving. Now, don't get me wrong. When you pray and you read the Bible and you go to church, those are just 
they are, those are ways we grow. I pray because I want to grow. I read the Bible because I want to grow. I go to church and hang out with God's people because I want to grow. But growing in Christ is not the same as earning his favor and what gets muddy. The water gets muddy for Christians. They get radically saved by grace and then they get in an environment of sanctification where growth is emphasized, which growth should be emphasized. And they get sanctification and justification all mixed up. Justification is the miracle of the moment, the moment you believe in Jesus, you are 100% righteous before God. And that's never going to be altered till you stand before him in heaven. Not one iota. If you didn't make church last Sunday or you didn't read enough chapters or you didn't pray enough this week, it doesn't tarnish or touch 100% righteousness in the eyes of God. But what do we do? You know, if you haven't been to church for a few Sundays, maybe you haven't read your Bible very much or prayed as much as, and maybe you've even been dabbling in some sin, and you go to pray and you go, well, I should pray, but I don't really deserve anything from God, right? I haven't been good enough to deserve anything from God. Can I let you on on a big whopping secret? You've never done anything good enough to deserve to hear from God or to have him answer something. Right? It's not like the Lord's up there. Look at Rick. We're giving him some brownie points today. He's really coming along. And what a snappy little Christian he is. When I got saved, I woke up in a strange house. I didn't know what neighborhood I was in. I went to the bar that day. I put a couple of drug deals together. I went home that day, half drunk, and through time. I'm not going to get into it, but I just fell on my knees and asked God to forgive me of my sins. I was messed up. And in that moment, I realized I was 100% forgiven. And every time in my Christian life, even after all these years, when I slip into its almost automatic human religion 101, I've got to be good enough for God to like me. Isn't that something? It's like we have this weird broken default inside of us. I just got to be good enough for God to like. For God so loved the world, he gave his son when you, you couldn't give a rip. You didn't even care. You didn't care about Jesus. You're out there doing whatever you're doing. He came. He, he laid his life down. He paid the price. He loves you. He's never going to stop loving you. Isn't that crazy? And so each morning this week, I just want to encourage you in what it will do in transforming your life. You do the proper spiritual math. I can wake up today thinking I'm earning and deserving God's love and favor. I can wake up every day I, because you sincerely believe in Jesus. I'm just going to believe and receive the blessings that God has for me. I don't deserve God's blessing. Not, not one day of my life have I ever deserved a blessing of God. You go, well, you're a pastor you do nice things. You're good. Do you know that God only puts people in ministry because this is the remedial class for Christianity? <laughs> right? <laughs> Rick needs a lot of extra help. Let's just put him in service in church five services a week, you know. Let's just put him to work serving Jesus. And that'll keep him out of trouble. No. It's not like you're good enough and then you get the shot. God says he's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. It's like scanning a room like this and said, who's the biggest fool in this room? I got him over there in the corner, that, that Rick Brown guy. And I'm just going to love him and I'm going to pour out. I'm going to show him how good I am in spite of him. And that's the thing that people don't get. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, not because of me, but in spite of me. Because I wake up every day believing and receiving. I'm not coming to God earning and deserving. One thing. And if you and I get into the uh, believing and receiving, we are a blessed people. We're so happy. Why? Because he did it all. I'm just enjoying it. Right? He did it all. I'm just enjoying it. How many Christians live with that kind of reckless freedom? And I don't mean to reckless to, to get in a sin. I mean simply to believe carte blanche what the scriptures teach about the righteousness, the position, the justification. Sanctification is him cleaning me up. He's doing that. But justification, 
I live my life. It's like, it's like starting your life from the finish line, like you've won. You know, everybody's like over here on the starting line. And they go, what are you doing over there? That's the finish line. I know, that's where I'm starting. I'm starting at the finish line. Why? Because Jesus finished it and I'm here. And I'm just going to jog with you guys for fun because I'm already finished. You know? So, not only do we need to have the right arithmetic, spiritually speaking, he goes on to count. We need to count and add up two plus two, if you will, about our past and about the future. He says in verse 13 of chapter 3, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. For some of us, we don't have happiness today because of what happened last week, last month, last year, last decade. We're dogged by guilt and shame. But Jesus will forgive and Jesus will cleanse. And it doesn't mean that you, there might be opportunities to make amends. There might be opportunity to make restitution. There might be opportunity to make things right. But when I pursue those things, and, and I just don't want to ball and chain about my past. You know, there's stuff in my past. I can't fix it. How about you? Can you fix it? It's like toothpaste once you get it out. I can't get it back in. It's, it's out, right? And so it's out. And so I, I, have to, I have a choice every day of my life, and you have a choice every day in your life. I can look forward and press forward to what God has for me today and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year with, filled with this sense of hope because God's good and his goodness is coming my direction, or I can be plagued by my past. I can be held back by my past. How often when I spend time with people that are so unhappy, it doesn't take long to get to the conversation, this happened back here, and their feet have been nailed to the floor there, and they cannot move forward. They can't let go. They don't know how to move forward. Maybe you've been stuck. You've just been stuck. You need to let that go. Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to that, what God has for us in the future. He has a future for us. As we transition in chapter four, we see things that could hinder us from that happy, full life. Conflicts with others. Where he says in verse two of chapter four, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He does this so gently to these two sisters that he loves. He follows these verses by saying he la- they labored with him in the Lord. And they're sideways with each other. And you know, some of you were really happy a month ago, but you haven't been happy for a month ever since you had that falling out with Alice. That falling out with George. That falling out with, you know, I mean, you, you just had some conflict. And you don't know how to... Get over it. Matthew 18 says, well, if you've got a problem, just go talk to them. And if they don't listen, maybe you could take somebody that could be, uh, you know, help you with the reconciliation process. There's a process to get things sorted out. But he just tells these two sisters, they're both mature. They're both Christians. And, and he says, you know what? You guys just get on the same mind. It, it, means, it means bridge the gap. Get on the same page. Stop worrying about who's right. And let's just walk in love. <laughs> and some of you are husband and wife, and you're in that situation, and you have been in all night. So, uh, you know, you're coming to church, let's go to church and love Jesus, you know, <laughs> as you're bickering all the way here. And, you know, when you're married a long time, there's a place that you get, in the early years, all you're worried about is winning the fights. As you get older, you're just like, I just don't want to fight. So what is it, how do we need to, you know, sort through this thing to get on a, a pay place of peace and tranquility, how can we have that restored? Because you know, even in your relationships, your most intimate relationships, your husband and wife, mom and dad, uh, your children relationships, that when thing, those things aren't right, it feels like something's, it's almost like the universe is out of sorts, doesn't it? I feel that way, it seems like life's just not quite right till you get that solved. And so some of us come to the altar, like Jesus said, you bring your gift to the altar to worship God. And there you remember you got a problem. And the Lord says, hey, just leave that gift here. You and I, we're okay. You go fix this with them. And then you come back and your worship's going to be free. You're going you're to feel that sense of wholeness. So that can keep you from that wholeness and happiness that God has for you. Also, conflicts in our mind. This is what uh, we know as ants. 
automatic negative thoughts, aka anxious thoughts. Any of you <laughs> worry warts? Any of you nervous Nellies? Any of you just fret, 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 fret. <gasps> and if you can't think of something to fret about, you'll find a friend and then fret with them. You just love to fret, 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 fret. And automatic negative thoughts are something that every human has come into your brain all day long, right? Thinking the wrong things, the wrong thoughts. And so you want to learn how to kill ants, right? A-N-T. You want to learn how to kill ants. Paul the Apostle now gives us the sledgehammer to kill ants. He does it really in, in uh, three ways. First of all, he tells us, that in our prayer life, this is where we can kill ants. Because when I have negative thoughts, which I do, I mean, your, your, your mind is a very busy place. Now, some are worse than others in how they entertain those thoughts, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But when I start getting fearful and anxious, which I do, I start becoming afraid about various things, often, you know, 90% of the things I ever worry about would have ever even happened in my life. But that's what starts occupying my mind. And he tells us, be anxious for nothing in verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice he says three things. Be anxious for nothing, but in Everything by prayer, that means every general conversation with God. Supplication, that's a very specific request to God. With thanksgiving and having a thankful heart in my prayer to God. That when I pour all of that out to God, in exchange for all of my worries, all of my fears, all of my concerns, he gives me a, pa a peace that surpasses understanding. And... When you don't have that outlet, what do you do? What do you do with that anxiety? I mean, substance abuse, everybody self-medicates, right? They're going to have to drink themselves into oblivion every night, or they're going to have to drop the pharmaceutical drugs, or the illicit drugs, or wh whatever it is, that somehow I have to get relief from my mind. Somehow I have to be able to tune out. Somehow I have to be able to shut things off. But he tells us, just vent it all in prayer to the Lord and then experience this supernatural peace of God and he will guard your heart, that's your emotions, and your mind, your thoughts, through prayer. How many times have you been freaked out and somebody says, let's just pray about it, and you pray about it, and afterwards you go, oh, I, I feel better. Did anything change about the circumstance? No. You just, oh, we told God. So you just go through life telling God everything, right? If it troubles you, tell God. And I'll have anxious thoughts, and then I'll pour my heart out to prayer to the Lord, and I'll have this great, beautiful peace, and a few hours will go by, and after a few hours, all those thoughts start coming back in and start, and, oh, and I gotta tell God again. Well, how often do you have to do that? As much as you have mental problems. I have mental problems. Honestly, in the mental health field, the way that humans deal with their automatic negative thoughts, how they process those, depends on whether they're going to mentally improve or deteriorate. The whole 90% of the battle of your whole life is where? All in your mind. Isn't it weird? My mind's like a circus. What's going on? Have you ever had just scary thoughts? You're driving down the road and just have this weird, bizarre temptation or thought. I've scared myself before. You ever scare yourself? I've scared myself. I can't believe I thought that. Right? I mean, it's just like, you didn't, it's not like I'm looking for that thought. Right? It just, it's boom. The Bible says that the enemy, he, has these fiery arrows, these fiery missiles, these fiery darts, and shooting these, these things at us. And then our own fallen nature, we gravitate towards what's negative and scary because in our fallen nature, we just expect things to be bad and scary rather than God is good and it's all going to be okay. Right? So some of you haven't been enjoying really the wholeness and happiness of the Lord 
in these last months because you've been afraid. You're afraid. What are you afraid of? Have you told God about it? Have you thanked him for being so faithful and just tell him every morning, noon, and night? Tell him every, you know, on the hour if you have to until you get his peace? Until you get that, that incredible protection that he would guard your emotional life and your mental life? Some people, I've just watched them before my eyes mentally deteriorate into a very mentally unstable and healthy person to where they're headed towards harming themselves. You see, Paul says, if you want to kill ants, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to tell God all about it, and you're going to do it consistently, and you're going to do it faithfully. And in exchange for that bucket of worries, he's going to give you a beautiful peace that will guard your heart and your mind. Secondly, he tells us what we need to think about and meditate on. It says in verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. This is the most positive mental attitude that God could possibly give to us. Hey, you know what? Start thinking about the good things. Think about the things that the Lord has. And this is why, for me, I just, I just have scripture in my mind. And so when I start struggling with my thoughts, the, the good and praiseworthy things to me are all the promises of God. And so I just think about the promises of God, and I read his word. And you say, well, I don't know the promises of God. I don't know the word. Well, then you need to start reading your Bible so you have some promises in there to draw on. I say, hey, trust the promises of God. And I have people, I don't know any promises from God. And I'm like, oh, no, you're really sunk, man. <laughs> you don't have any promises. Well, you got to meditate on the good things, the praiseworthy things, rather than so often, if you, if you become anxious and afraid, what do people do in this modern day of Google? You now Google everything you're fearful and anxious and afraid of, and now you're triple freaked out, right? Because you just went into the, the hole of fear. I mean, you just went into the prison, and it's no wonder, I mean, more people aren't in mental institutions because of everything now you can research of all these scary things rather than Good things. Meditate on the, the beautiful and the lovely things. And you have to take your thoughts captive, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? It means I've got all these thoughts that come shooting into my mind, and I want to put handcuffs on the bad ones, and I want to throw them in prison. <laughs> Say, Jesus, take care of that. I, I can't be you know, thinking about that. I have to take that thought captive. And so this is a skill you begin to learn. You take thoughts captive. I'm going to discard that. I'm not going to think about that. And I'm going to think about these three positive things instead. Right? This is what happens in marriages. I've done marriage counseling for 30 years as a pastor. I've been a pastor for 30 years. You don't even, you can't imagine the stories that people have told me across there. And now I'm going to tell them all. No, I'm not going to. Right? There's privacy issues or something like that. But the thing is, is that a husband and wife, they get a little sideways. They have this, it's the craziest thing to me that people that when I did the premarital counseling, they're like gaga for each other. You know, it's almost like that syrupy, sick, like, oh, you know, they're just, hey, and you're just like, that's great. You know, you're really in love. Have you had a fight yet? No, us, we've never had a fight. We'll go have a fight and come back. We'll talk, you know. Let's see how you work through things. Conflict resolution. Right? But what happens is they start, a couple of things go wrong, and then they just start thinking about that all the time. This is what he did. This is what she did. This is what she doesn't do. This is what he doesn't do. This is what they do. This is what they don't do. This is how he smells. This is how he doesn't smell. This is, a, you know, this, he, he can't find the laundry basket. What's his problem? He can't find the laundry basket. He's dirty underwear on the floor all the time. What's this? When I see him, I see a pile of whitey tidies on the floor. There it is. And they'll tell you all this stuff. Like, you don't even want to know. Sometimes TMI, too much information. I mean, just like, and you look at him and you say, why, why don't you just tell me three th great things about your wife? Uh, she brushes her teeth. You know. And what's happened is now for weeks, months, years, they have so fixated on what this person does wrong, that's all they can see. And that's all they think about. And they can't wait to get out. 
And they don't realize they're going to go trade them in like an old used Chevy, and they're going to get a new model. And you know what? What are they going to do? They're going to repeat. And they're going to do the exact same thing. Right? Because this one stacked up his underwear. This one's got stinky feet and clammy hands. Didn't notice it when we were in love, but they're clammy hands. You know, all I can think about is like, you fish boy over there wants to hold my hand. <laughs> and they fixate, they fixate on things that is destroying, and they just don't know how to meditate on something good. The reason most of us, if you are experiencing a happiness, is because all you think about is what's wrong with your life and what's wrong with everybody around you and what's wrong with the boss and what's wrong with the coworker. And you go through life and you got a stacked up pile of garbage and you think you're going to be happy with that big pile of garbage. Isn't it great that the garbage comes once a week and takes away all that stinky trash? Isn't that great? You ever get messed up on the holiday? Now, is it the day after? Because the holiday came. <laughs> but the goal is to get rid of the stinky trash once a week, right? But some of us, we, we got like a, you have a landfill of garbage in your mind. Of what's wrong with everybody else. And you just don't know how to be thankful and meditate on something that's good. I promise you, you can find it. You just haven't been looking. And when you do that, your mental health will begin to rise, and people will see it. Your countenance rises. And people say, what'd you change? I mean, you get a haircut, you lose weight. No, I just shed about 50 pounds of garbage. I feel pretty good. <laughs> pretty happy. It's a good day. Wow, look at the sunshine. That's a nice shirt you have on. What a blessing. Yeah. What happened to you? Well, I just decided to. Take Paul's advice and take care of my thoughts. I've been praying about these things, taking my thoughts captive. And then we need good examples. It says in verse 9 of chapter 4, you need good examples. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. You know, when you see somebody that knows how to do these things and you see their life, get close to a man, rub shoulders, it'll rub off on you. You'll sense that they're positive. You'll, you'll sense that they're trusting God. You'll sense they want to pray. They, they have the promises of God in their heart, right? And, and if you're not that person yet, get close to people that are, that you might become that person because they're the example. And that's what Paul, he just rolls it right into this. says, hey, you guys saw how I lived? You saw the way I thought about things? You saw the way I prayed? You, you saw the way I treated others? You saw... Even the most difficult of circumstances, I had the joy of the Lord and the happiness in the Lord. Why? Because God's on the throne. There's three great Christian qualities, Paul says. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, I trust God with all my heart no matter what's going on in my life. Hope, the certainty of coming good. Hope is not the, our English definition of I hope so. No, hope is the certainty of coming good from the hand of a good God. That's what hope is. I'm trusting the God of the universe with my life. I trust that this God is going to bring goodness to me to give, because that's who he is. And then I'm going to walk in love and kindness towards people that are outside. And when you walk in faith, hope, and love, your countenance and the fullness and the joy and the happiness of your life rises. And everybody around you will see it. And that whatever you have, they're hoping it's contagious because they want some. But the majority of Christians not enjoying these promises and all the obstacles of hindrance. Some Christians are so miserable, so sad, so down in the mouth, such negative eors that, you know, you want to share that with others. People look at you and you go, you want to know my Jesus like I know him with such joy? And they're like, ooh, get out of here. I don't want to whatever sickness you have. I don't want your disease. Have you noticed that the people that you are gravitate towards are people that are joyful, happy people? Don't you want to get close to them? You're just hoping some of it rubs off. What do people think about you? They want to get close to you? Good things flowing from your life? Is that what's happening? They want to find out? 
Is that wholeness overflowing? Lastly, conflict that comes with our circumstances. We looked at the conflict with others. We looked at the conflict of the mind. Paul gave us a lot of good food, groceries to take home with us to unpack. But then conflict with our circumstances. We end here tonight. In verse 11 through 13, it says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, but both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This last conflict that he wraps up with here is the conflict of our circumstances. You know, if you have a little or you have a lot, you know, moving through life, to me, just being really open and honest, learning to be content in whatever state I'm in has been the biggest challenge of my Christian life. Because I'm a very driven person, so if I get this status quo of this contentment, it's not long before I'm want, wanting to build this or add that or do, you know, I mean, just always, always, always expanding um, life and things. And, and there's there's a place in which it, it creates a restlessness. And yet Paul says, you know what? I want you to know that I can do all things through Christ. You can put me in the most poverty situation where I'm in. I'm hungry and I'm in need and, and I'm content. Or you can, I can be um, on a yacht with millionaires, with caviar, and I can abound and I'm content. Now those are the extreme bookends of life, aren't they? I mean, you're, you're down and out. Or you're up and over, whatever you want to call that, right? Those two extremes. And Paul says, from this end to that end and everywhere in the middle, I have learned. Notice that phrase. He doesn't, I am. He says, I have learned. He has been enrolled in the school of life. And someone has said that the school of life is the best teacher if you can afford the tuition. Right? And you and I, we have, uh, we're enrolled in this school of life. And we're learning, right? I'm much more content now than I was 10 years ago with my circumstances that are really in this season of my life. Very different from week to week, every week. In want and in need, whatever it is. And to learn whatever state, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what are your circumstances? What, are, what is the situation in your life? And is God teaching you? Are you learning the lessons of contentment? I, I've thought about it because I've hung out with billionaires. And then I've hung, you know, when I grew up, we were very poor. And, uh, you know, my, on food stamps. And so I know what poverty is like. And I know, uh, I know what wealth's like. But at the end of the day, really, honestly, all I need is enough food in my belly and a place to lay my head and go to sleep and a roof over me, right? The billionaire does it with class. <laughs> the homeless guy does it underneath the bridge, right? Goes to the soup kitchen. But honestly, the Lord says he, even birds, birds, the Lord says he feeds them. They don't have bank accounts. They don't store up things. He just feeds them every day. I mean, they're out there just, just eating stuff, right? And he feeds them and takes care of them. So why is it with, as humans, we are so challenged by contentment? Because we have this insatiable craving for more, no matter what it is. Don't care who you are. Always want more. Bigger, better, faster. Right? And contentment is just a really elusive thing that God has to teach in each one of us in the way that we're wired but it's a learning process. It's a learning curve. Paul's now laid out four chapters in this brief overview tonight to let us know what are the hindrances or what are the pathways to the happiness and the wholeness that God has for us. Some of them are obstacles that we, got to, we have to figure out how to remove from our life through prayer and asking for his help change our mindset. For some of them, there are things that we need to implement and let go of the past, solve that conflict with that person, whatever it might be, and restore the, that which is 
detracting from the overall quality of each one of our lives. And every one of us have different fingerprints and different DNA and different circumstances to our life. And your life's not my life. And my life's not your life. You got your own deal, right? I have enough problems of my own to take care of, and so do you. But the cool thing is that Jesus, the Lord of glory, that laid his life down and promised you, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. He did not come to promise you mediocre life. He did not come to promise you, I've come to be your savior and give you a miserable life. He has come that you might have abundant life. That means a whole bunch more of something that is good.